Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Hi everyone. Today we will talk about uh, the emotional lives of teenagers and what does that have to do with our Swedish schools and for you teachers and principals. Uh, today's guest actually, she is a psychologist with a PhD in clinic, clinical psychology and author of several best-selling books. And recently when I visited a school in LA, I received a, a copy of her latest book. I think it is the latest, at least, uh, with the name The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. The audience for that, I think, is mostly mostly parents. But uh, uh, when I read it, I just thought this is so interesting for every teacher and for every principal in our Swedish schools. So I'm happy, honored, and it's a privilege to welcome uh, Dr. Lisa Damore. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, at least in our Swedish schools, uh, it's more and more challenges with uh, with sort of the the emotional or psychological health among our teenagers, and it gets down in ages as well. And this has been for several years, and it's uh, the problem has increased. And of course, the pandemic didn't help. Uh, but but maybe. When I read your book, I was thinking, what what, what do we mean with uh, with emotional health? Actually, that could be a really good thing to start with. Yeah, and that's actually one of the main reasons I wrote my book. That um, at least in the U.S., the way the popular culture has been talking about emotional well-being doesn't actually match up with how we understand it as psychologists. And what I mean by that is that so often being emotionally healthy or mental health is equated with feeling good or calm or relaxed or at ease. And those are all lovely things. But when psychologists are assessing mental health, we're looking for two things. Do the feelings make sense? Do they fit the situation the young person's in? And then are the feelings handled well? So if a kid's best friend is moving far away, we expect sadness. And the presence of that sadness is not grounds for concern. It's actually evidence that that kid works perfectly. And what we're really interested in is how they handle that emotion. Do they seek support, want to talk about it, maybe weep a little bit, find ways to comfort themselves? Or do they take it out on everybody else? Are they, you know, awful to be around? Do they turn it against themselves? It's only in that second category that we become concerned that for us, mental health absolutely includes becoming very sad about something and then weeping and talking about it. That's as good as it gets. Um, And so I think it's really key that we don't set the bar for mental health at some place that is unattainable and unrealistic. Yeah, maybe in, I mean, the kids are in schools many hours a day, Uh, could be maybe 
my experience is, is that we don't talk so much about uh, emotions or feelings in our schools. Could that be part sort of the challenge or could we help? I mean, we have so much time at school. We should maybe help better as school staff, teachers and principals and other staff then. Absolutely. And I think there's a kind of a two-part process there. One is helping kids develop a language for emotion, being yeah. able to name feelings and talk about feelings. And certainly in the U.S., we socialize girls to be much more capable in that than we socialize boys to be. There's no biological reason why there would be a difference, but we do see a big difference. It's just socialization. And then the other part is to really focus on coping. So it's not the prevention of distress. It's not making it go away quickly. It's that we cope with distress. And sometimes we cope by expressing our feelings and sometimes we cope by taming our feelings. But that's yeah. really what we're looking for. But there's no place out there that a kid or an adult can get to where everything feels good all the time. And that was never available and doesn't have to be available. Mm -hmm. It's really about knowing what one's feeling and then coping well with it. Yeah. So then perhaps you should, as a school staff, uh, make a difference between suppressing feelings and sort of regulating feelings then. Yeah. And regulating feelings is the term we use. And yeah. for us, regulating, it's really a two-sided process. Sometimes we express feelings and sometimes we tame them. And that can feel awfully close to suppressing. But when psychologists use suppressing emotion, what we usually mean is suppressing it all the time, right? That you're yeah. never allowing feeling. And that's not healthy. But we do consider it to be healthy if a kid is upset and they want to comfort themselves, or if a kid is upset and they want to find a, a temporary distraction just to take a little break from their um, frustration, or if a kid is upset and they try to gain perspective on the situation to comfort themselves and tame the emotion. So there's very healthy ways that we see that kids and adults bring feelings back under control. Yeah. I mean, our kids in schools, they often talk about Uh, anxiety and mm. more and more need help from health professional I'm thinking uh, what does it mean I, I mean it's sometimes as I read your book it's sometimes functional sometimes it's not and it's also interesting what can we do as school staff maybe to prevent that we need ending up in needing uh, professionals to support them so anxiety is a good example of a feeling that kids talk about a lot more than they used to, certainly in the U.S. And it's also a good example of a feeling that can be healthy or unhealthy, depending on the context. Yeah. So let's start with the talking about it a lot more. So one thing I've noticed in American teenagers is they use the term anxiety in a pretty broad way. Mm -hmm. And I often think what they're saying is that they don't feel calm, that that's what they're describing. Now, not calm is a big category with a lot of feelings within it. So when a teenager says to me, I'm feeling anxious, I'll usually say, okay, well, what's happening? And if they describe a fight with a friend or a big you know, sports event coming up, I'll say, oh, maybe you're anxious, but maybe you're also angry with that friend, or maybe you're excited about this sports event. So I'll try to bring in more what we call granularity, more specificity to the emotion itself. Yeah, yeah. But if they're like, no, I'm afraid, <laughs> like I'm I'm worried about this big test, you know, I'm worried about, um, you know, my cranky relative who's coming over, you know, something where there's really grounds for fear. And that really is what we like into anxiety. Then what we want to talk with teenagers about is recognizing healthy anxiety versus unhealthy anxiety. So healthy anxiety is the feeling we have when there is a threat. 
So if a kid has a big test and they haven't started studying, they should be anxious. That is actually a good sign. We also, so we only diagnose anxiety as, con as concerning if it shows up for no reason, right? If there's nothing yeah. wrong, then we consider it pathological or if it's way out of proportion to what's wrong. So if a kid hasn't studied for a test, being anxious is a good thing. It will help them study. Yeah. If they're having a panic attack, that's not helping them. That's too big. And we yeah. would want to bring that under control. But there's a lot of really valuable conversations to have with young people about emotions. And they're interested in them. And they're interested in it when adults take them seriously and want to help make sense of what they're feeling and also teach them about how emotions work. Yeah. In your book, and that is also our experience in Sweden, that... Uh that it's a difference between genders when it comes to empathy. Yeah. Mm, yeah, no, we do see some consistent findings, gendered findings in yeah. um, the world of emotion. And one is that girls are more empathic than boys. This is also socialized. There is no reason, you know, inborn that this should be true. And, and there are a couple of reasons that we think um, this happens. You know, one is that when girls are unkind, we have research showing that adults are more likely to ask them, how do you think that made the other person feel? You know, that we, yeah, we've sort of yeah. put it in those terms. Whereas with boys, we might just sanction them, you know, or punish them. The other reason, and there's there's decent, but I wouldn't say, you know, rock solid evidence for this, but I think it stands to reason. It's a pretty good theory that um, girls and women are vulnerable to male power. And so yeah. being highly attuned to the emotions of the people around you, especially people who wield power and may not wield it in ways that are um, just or fair, is actually a survival skill. And so girls and women may have developed that over time, you know, or may develop it in themselves as a way to be safe. So yeah. we do see differences in empathy, but the bottom line is you can raise perfectly empathic sons. There's nothing that is biologically going to get in the way of that, but it's going to take the kind of coaching that we tend to do with girls. In that respect, do you have any recommendations for us as school staff then, how we can sort of make it work so everyone will get really empathic and talk about feelings? Yeah, so there are several things you can do. First, part of what helps kids be empathic with other kids is when adults are empathic with them. Right, that that they have to feel felt with in order to be know what it feels like to try to feel with somebody else. So when a kid's upset, for an adult to say, "Oh man, I'm really sorry," or that does sound very painful, right? You're actually modeling the empathy that we want them to apply to others. Yeah. And I don't always know that we do that for boys as much as we do it for girls. Then, of course, there can be the direct teaching of saying, "Like, hey, buddy, what do you think that felt like for that kid? What you just did? Like, if you were in his shoes, what would that feel like?" And taking the time with that. Yeah. Um, those things can go very far in terms of helping to cultivate a sense of empathy. Mm, another interesting thing I wrote, I read in the book was about uh, teenagers and self-esteem. That mm. is also a big issue uh, to support them in schools. It is. And mm. one thing I lay out in the book that... I really was surprised I haven't seen elsewhere. And if you read the um, the 
note at the back of the book because my book, all of my reference notes are in the back. It's a very lengthy note explaining you know, like what I looked at and what I saw and what I how I searched for this finding and couldn't find it elsewhere. Yeah. Is that, you know, in the U.S., you're in the sixth grade right around age eleven, and I think I could have titled a very large section of the book. It's very hard to be a sixth grade boy, and what I mean by that is that sixth grade girls as a group are way ahead of sixth grade boys as a function of puberty. And they're ahead of them both neurologically, that puberty actually confers a lot of cognitive skills. And they're also ahead of them physically, um, bigger, stronger, faster. And we also in the US notice that sexual harassment tends to begin right around the sixth grade, much mm. much earlier yeah, than people think. Yeah. And I was sort of surprised and no one had sort of lined these two findings up together. And I think there's a decent case to be made, and I try to make it in the book, that if you're a sixth grade boy and you're trying to consolidate your sense of masculinity, as many of them are, yeah. and then you're in the classroom and girls are beating you left and right academically, and then you go out to recess and the girls are bigger, stronger, faster, it doesn't feel that great. And yeah. this is the opposite of what you know masculinity often means to a lot of kids. And so some boys are not going to handle that well. And some boys are going to handle that by trying to take girls down a few pegs, as we say. And of course, these girls have developed bodies, some of them, and are far along. And so it just it lays the table for a kid mm. who's not going to handle it well to start to treat girls in ways that are bullying in a sexualized form in order to try to regain some sense of self-worth. So one thing we have to do is find ways for sixth grade boys to feel really good about themselves that do not involve being jerks. Mm. And we also want to protect the self-esteem of the girls because we know from research that self-esteem plummets right around these ages. And we have always attached that to a degree to the increased sexualization of girls. Mm. That's interesting. Another thing that caught me in the book was about uh, behavior and expectations because uh, uh, you're right about the different the development of the brain, what, what develops in in which order, and in, in at least in Swedish schools, we sometimes struggle with having like calm classrooms and uh, mm. behavior, and also in, during recess. But in in general, uh, and you're right about expectations in that matter, and that is really interesting, I think. And different expectations for kids at different points in development. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and maybe maybe we have challenges in school. You also write about the differences in like uh, risk management, risk taking between teenagers and adults. Uh, mm -hmm. That maybe we as adults, staff in school, think about the teenagers as adults when they are, aren't that. Could you maybe comment about that? Yeah. So mm. it's natural to adolescents for teenagers to want to seek out novelty and seek out things that are exciting. And so this often involves risk-taking, right? Pushing boundaries. And this is fundamentally healthy and important for them to do. But we also know that teenagers sometimes get caught up in risks that are really dangerous or engage yeah. in behavior there where, you know, mistakes can be made that are not easily fixed if they're not fixed, if they're fixable at all. And so what we want to do as adults is to give teenagers ways to 
engage in boundary pushing behavior that is safe enough for them. And yeah. I think so often about like, I grew <clears throat> up in, Col in Colorado and I grew up skiing and I grew up, you know, playing outdoors with my friends and that sort of boundary pushing athletics and being independent and being what we felt to be naughty because we were very loud on the ski slopes. Yeah. You know, I look back yeah. on that as just ideal in many ways. And so I think those kinds of things are kids who get into skateboarding or kids who get into, you know, mountaineering on their own, you know, the, yeah. and I, I imagine there's so many wonderful opportunities in Swedish culture for kids to really feel that they're being brave and feel that they're yeah. actually, you know, really stretching their limits. I think we want to create those opportunities for kids. And I also think we want to talk with teenagers about how they're going to keep themselves safe. That safety is not something that adults can do to teenagers. No, it is something no. we do with teenagers. Yeah. And so always partnering, you know, if a teenager's headed to a party and you're worried it's going to be out of control, saying, what's the plan for you being safe, right? Like, you got to keep yourself safe. I'm not going to be there. As opposed to saying, don't let me catch you, you know, because yeah, yeah. then they'll think, okay, don't get caught, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not really <laughs> yeah. what we're looking for. No, no. You would enforce the wrong thing then. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so if you would change role and not work as a psychologist, you would, mm. would be a principal for a, a new school that you could employ anyone you wanted and do everything mm. you wanted. You would decide what you should focus on. What what would be your main focus to have a, a really successful school with healthy teenagers that are successful academically as well? Great question. <laughs> so... What we know is the perfect combination is high warmth and high expectations. That kids thrive both at home and at school when they feel really, really cared for and that people know who they are and are interested in them as people and when people hold them to very high standards for their academic performance and their behavior, right? That, that a lot is asked of them. And you when we look at research on this, like we call that the learning zone, right? Where there's yeah, high warmth yeah. and high expectations. Yeah. And if there's high expectations and low warmth, it just ma makes kids anxious. And if there's high warmth and low expectations, like they just don't get a lot done, right? I mean, they, they no, like, not true. Yeah. They, you know, they don't mind it, but they're not accomplishing much. There's not a lot to take pride in. And if there's, you know, low warmth and low expectations, they just become disengaged. So we really are targeting that quadrant, you know, where... Um, standards are held high and the adults are really kind and like teenagers. Now, the reality is relationships are chemistry problems, right? Yeah. That not everybody's going to be a good fit. And that's okay too. I think what matters to me the most would be knowing that every student in the building felt meaningfully connected to an adult in the building. And there's wonderful work conducted at um, a group in Har at Harvard called Making Caring Common where they do relational maps of schools and they ask students to identify all the adults to whom they feel connected. And they ask adults to identify all the students to whom they feel connected. Yeah. And they make sure that there's actually a real link for every kid. And so in my ideal school, we would do that. So it's not that every kid has to like every adult, that will no, never happen. No, and there's possible. value, yeah, yeah. right? There's value yeah. in learning to work for someone you actually don't fit with. Yeah. But every kid needs somebody, and I would make sure that that was happening. Yeah, that's interesting. And what would you do 
I mean, you, you need to collaborate well also with the, the homes, with the parents. What would you do to try to make that happen then? Well, I think a lot of it is everybody being aligned on expectations. You know, when we look at the research on where kids and parents can have the most friction is when the expectations aren't in alignment between the child and the parent. So the parent either has aspirations for the kid that the kid does not themselves have, or the kid has aspirations the parents aren't supporting. So I think that that's a place where the school can play a critical role in bringing kids and families together to make sure that everyone's in agreement about what the targets are for that particular child. And they're not going to be the same for every kid. Mm. But if there, if there can be agreement, that's that's important. And I've for a long time consulted at a school, you know, and we use ABCDE as, you know, ABCDF yeah, yeah. as our grading yeah, scale. same in Sweden. Yeah. And like, not every kid has to get straight A's and not every kid's right. going to get straight A's. Like, that's not realistic or important. What matters <clears throat> is that the family and the kid are on board about what the expectation is. And then the school yeah. is part of that conversation. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it's a question that I, I ask every guest uh, because uh, I talk to a lot of school researchers and uh, experts in, in like evidence-based learning strategies and so on. And all of them says, says that uh, relations is really important, student-student and teacher-student. But yeah. not so many of them say how can you build that? They say it's important. It just has to be there, but yeah. not any strategies how to build them, like build trust and build relations. Yeah. Well, so my focus is always on teenagers. Like that's where my work yeah. is really yeah. centered. And not everybody likes teenagers and they don't have to, but they shouldn't no. be teaching teenagers then if they don't like them. <laughs> don't like no. And so I think The part of how you build it is you find adults who truly love this age group. And it's really, people really have strong feelings about teenagers one way or the other. I mean, like, you know, people who like them really like them and I really like them. So I think that part of how you build the relationships is you select for individuals who like truly value this developmental phase. And then I think the rest sorts itself out because teenagers can smell at a hundred yards who likes them and who doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And when adults te- treat teenagers with respect, <clears throat> teenagers almost invariably rise to that. And when adults are disrespectful, it tends not to go well. No. That fits quite well. A previous interview was with the two famous school researchers, uh, John Hattie and David Mitchell. And they asked me before, I got like a homework. They wanted me to interview some students and some teachers. And I interviewed some students what they wanted from teachers to to make it work for them in school. And they wanted to have really clear expectations. They wanted mm-hmm. the teachers to to like them and to, to believe in them. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. Yeah, many that's, many that's things the magic. said more things. Yeah, yeah. They said like uh, they want a lot of variation. They want blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But everyone said the same. I even yeah. I was at a bus station in uh, in a city where I I live, and mm-hmm. I just went up to a group of teenagers and just mm-hmm. they thought I would uh, give a reprimand or something, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they were happy to talk to me yeah. and they said the, the same thing. They yeah. they didn't get this question that often, but they they were good to talk to. Well, and that's what I mean. Like, 
I ask teenagers questions all the time. Yeah. And if they can tell that you're really asking and yeah. that you really want to know and that you're taking them seriously, yeah. they have so much they're eager to share. Yeah. And I think they can really quickly detect whether an adult has that view of adolescence or not. Yeah. So now we covered the recommendations for teachers, principals, and for parents. Uh, so if you would give recommendations directly to the teenagers, to the students, mm -hmm. then what would you say? Well, the first one's very boring, and they're not going to like it. But mm -hmm. I will tell you, sleep is the glue that holds human beings together. Yeah. And certainly in the U.S., our teenagers do not get nearly enough sleep, and it has a very dramatic and immediate impact on emotion regulation. So the first thing I would say to teenagers is, how's your sleep? What's getting in the way of your sleep? Could you sleep more than you're sleeping? Often the thing that's getting in the way the most is that their technology is in their bedrooms at night. And that's not good. <laughs> it's not. There's no reason that is a good reason for kids or any of us to have technologies in our rooms overnight. So I would start there, which would not be popular, but it is actually accurate. And my experience yeah. is that teenagers appreciate things that are honest. Um, yeah. So I would start there. And then the next thing I would talk with them about, or, you know, who who's in their circle? You know, what kind yeah. of social supports do they have? And what I would reassure them is that they don't need that many friends. That sometimes teenagers are very aware of large friendship groups or being popular yeah. and they aspire for that. But what we know from the research is that the happiest teenagers have a couple of really reliable friendships, and that's the least stressful scenario for kids to have a smaller group. And I find often that teenagers are quite relieved to hear that um, the target is not to have a giant friendship group, but to have a couple of reliable buddies. Yeah. That was really great advice. I think that advice we can use as uh, teachers and principals as well to sort of guide them. Yeah, so it was so like a multi-faced advice. Right. Uh, I think that is it sums it up perfectly. Do you have any like any final advice to to schools? If you have yeah school Sweden in front of you, what, what <laughs> <laughs> final advice to to us well, as school staff? There's a lot of talk in the United States about an adolescent mental health crisis, especially yeah. in the wake of the pandemic. And what I'm convinced of is that we're not going to get out of this crisis by trying to find more therapy or offer more medication to more kids. <clears throat> no. I don't think that's how it's going to happen. I think the way we're going to get out of this is by strengthening the relationships between teenagers and the adults right around them. And we know from decades of research that the strongest force for adolescent mental health is good, positive relationships with caring adults. So what I would say is it's critical for the mental health of young people that they feel cared for and respected by adults. And then they can't learn without it. I, I always think um, in terms of the three C's, I came up with these in the pandemic about how kids learn, which is first they have to feel connected to the adult. Yeah. That can help them feel calm. And then yeah. you can provide content, but you can't, the content won't go in if that kid doesn't feel connected or calm. Yeah. I read somewhere, a Swedish researcher also said that, uh, that learning comes over like a bridge of relations or maybe something mm -hmm. 
in that. Yeah. I think that's right. I think yeah. for adolescent mental health and learning, yeah. it's all about relationships. We see this over and over again in the research and also in practice. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you so much for thank you. Thank contributing you. with all your advice. I appreciate um, we, it so much. We finished.